All right, all right, all right. Welcome to Renegade Files, your podcast home for paranormal cases, unsolved mysteries, I'm not afraid to say it, conspiracy theories, and all things underground. I'm your host, Lex Gordon, coming to you unfiltered from the Jungle Villa Outpost, deep in the uncharted tropics. This is Renegade Files episode 41, Con Men and Hoaxers. First and foremost, as a disclaimer, this is not a how-to episode. Don't be a con man. That being said, this is a subject with which I've always had a dark fascination. In a modern world of Nigerian princes and fake Amazon frozen account emails, there's something nostalgic about the old-school face-to-face con the boldness and charisma of someone who can convince others to hand over fistfuls of cash is, while despicable, impressive, and hoaxes that cause society to take a better look at itself in the mirror have a place in modern folklore. In this episode, we will first quickly cover the basics of con language, types of scams, and the general ways con men operate, Then we will dive deep to learn about some of the world's most infamous con men, grifters, and hoaxers. Thank you for tuning in. You can easily share Renegade Files by sending a link to therenegadefiles.com to that one person you know who is, like you and me, into the worlds of high strangeness and covert culture. The Renegade Files website at therenegadefiles.com organizes everything in one place. One, quickly find us on your favorite podcast app with one-touch buttons. Two, listen to every episode right there on our free player if you'd rather. Three, get cool Renegade Files gear like shirts and hats at our shop. And four, help the show stay ad-free while getting bonus episodes and more by joining the other Renegade Files agents on Patreon. All of that is easy to find at therenegadefiles.com, and sharing that website is the best and easiest way to share the show. There's a link in the show notes, so share us with your crew. Thanks. Now let's delve into the shady world of con men and hoaxers. Part 1. Types of Cons Before we delve into the legends in this field, here is a quick rundown of the general types of cons and conmen and a few definitions to hip us to the lingo. The term conman is a shortened version of the term confidence man, who is someone who defrauds someone else, usually for money, by establishing trust and earning that person's confidence. Obviously, such a person could be male or female. Another name for a conman is a grifter. The person exploited by a conman is called a mark. The mark can also be a business, a group of people, or as we'll see, even the general public. Cons are traditionally divided into short cons and long cons. A short con is a quick, shuck-and-jive type fleecing that uses what I would call the speed and greed approach. 
these short cons take advantage of people's desire to get rich quick and they result in the mark getting ripped off quick. Long cons, on the other hand, are more complex schemes that take time to develop. They are logistically complex and they usually focus on larger amounts of money. Long cons often involve more than one con artist working together and some can take place over years. Here are a few examples of each one. As for the short con, one of the oldest and most reliable is the old pigeon drop. This makes use of people's desire to make a quick buck and it plays on a range of emotions including guilt, the fight or flight mechanism, and the willingness to give a little to gain a lot. The old pigeon drop has many versions but Here's one of my favorites and it illustrates the procedure well. A small con team, usually three people, work together loosely to pull this off and it's most often done in large cities. One team member pretends to be a paranoid street person dressed in dirty clothes and looking unkempt and acting shifty. This person approaches a well-off looking business person. The con artist acts nervous and clutches a bank envelope. This bank envelope has a name and phone number written by hand on the outside, usually the name of an important sounding doctor, say Dr. Charles Winston, and a phone number. The sketchy street character stops this business person immediately saying, I think this is a lot of money. I need help doing something with it. I need some help. Immediately, the business person is taken aback because he is expecting this guy to ask for money, but instead, the guy is saying he's found money. He shows the bank envelope to the mark. The mark sees the doctor's name and phone number and looks inside. Inside the envelope are several very convincing looking, but fake gold coins. The homeless acting character explains that he thinks the coins are worth money, but he doesn't want to get into trouble. He just found them and he's scared he's going to be accused of stealing them. This is part two of the con and it plays on the Mark's confidence that he, himself, would never be accused of stealing something he had just found. This also strokes the righteous ego of the Mark. He is respectable. He does the right thing. The con man suggests the Mark call the number and see if the coins are worth any money. The mark calls the number, and on the other end, a female answers the phone saying, Good afternoon, Dr. Winston's office. This person is the second party to the con. The mark asks to speak to the doctor and is put on hold. The third con man answers as Dr. Charles Winston. The mark tells him about the sketchy homeless guy and the coins in the envelope he found. At this point, the so-called doctor is overjoyed and grateful. Oh my lord, you found my coins? Oh man, wow. And he explains to the mark that he has a $2,000 cash reward out for the coins. All the mark needs to do is come to his office and collect the reward for returning the coins. At this point, the homeless actor starts pestering the mark, asking if the coins are worth money. Are they worth money? Are they valuable? Hey, do we get anything for him? Come on, come on, what's he saying? Hearing the chatter, the doctor says, Just give that chap a hundred bucks to get rid of him. Then come get the reward. 
He then gives the mark his office address and says, However, I am about to leave town for the week. If you can't make it here within the hour, I'll have to wait and give it to you next Monday. Or maybe Tuesday. This plays on the Mark's guilt for getting $2,000 and the homeless guy getting nothing and his fear of missing out if the doctor leaves town. A sense of urgency. The Mark then gives the homeless guy $100, sometimes more, then sets off to the doctor's address. When he gets there, he sees that it's a hotel. The phone was a payphone in the lobby. There is no doctor and there is no doctor's office there. The so-called paranoid homeless guy meets up with the other two somewhere else and shares the $100 with them, and they do it over and over again. One hotel in New York City where these marks are sent said people come looking for Dr. Charles Winston 10 times a day, every day of the year. That's $300,000 a year. $100,000 a year each for the three con men. In contrast, the long con takes more time, is more complicated, and usually involves larger sums of cash. Someone who perpetrates a fraudulent persona con is doing a long con. One example of the long con would be the Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme Madoff convinced a long list of investors, including celebrities and trust funds, to join his investment fund, which supposedly analyzed the stock market and paid out returns of 10, 20, or 25% every year. And for a time, he did just that. But this money he was paying out didn't come from actual investment profits, but from the additional people joining the fund and investing more money. That's what a Ponzi scheme is. It's also the basic way social security works, and commercial bank accounts for that matter. So that's the short and long of what con artists do. In addition to these grifters, we'll also cover hoaxers. Hoaxers differ from con men in that hoaxers don't always make money directly from their dishonest activities. Sometimes they do, but hoaxers are more about deception than profit. Part 2. Successful Phonies In this section, we'll look at a few of the most successful conmen in the category of the fraudulent persona. These types of conmen are unique in that they don't target and scam a single mark, but rather, they create an entire personality that deceives everyone they interact with on a wide scale. They do the long con in a big way. First up is Carlos Kaiser, the greatest soccer player to never play the game. Carlos Kaiser is a Brazilian football player, that's soccer to us Yanks, who was a total con man. He loved soccer and he wanted to be a professional soccer player, but he didn't have the skill, ability, or even the motivation to actually learn to be great at the sport. In short, he just wanted the lifestyle. From 1979 to 1992, Carlos Kaiser played as a forward or a striker for 13 different professional soccer teams, but he never scored one goal. In fact, he never played in a single game. 
you can look at his statistics and for each team listed by years, they also list his game appearances and goals like they normally do with soccer players. And both of those statistics are just two columns of 26 zeros. So how did he pull it off? Well, he would pay people in the crowds to sing songs about him when the coaches and team managers walked by. He made friends with sports journalists, and he would tell them fantastic stories of his saves and goals and matches, and they would print the stories, and this made him extremely popular with fans. One journalist wrote that Kaiser had played so well for a team in Mexico that he had been invited by the president of Mexico to become a Mexican citizen. Carlos Kaiser leveraged his sports media connections to spin his name into the ranks of the most respected players of the game. He was a hero among fans and team owners even though he was never really a soccer player at all. He was a con man. At the time, cell phones were expensive, so Carlos Kaiser bought a realistic-looking toy cell phone. He would pretend to answer it when the coaches or team managers were nearby, and he would hold pretend conversations where he would reject offers from other teams to transfer there for more money. He was able to keep from ever playing by faking an injury before the first match, then remaining injured for the season. By doing this and by periodically changing teams, he managed to be a highly paid professional soccer player for 13 years without ever actually playing. In 1986, Carlos Kaiser moved to Europe and joined a French Division II soccer team. To celebrate his arrival at this team, the club arranged a training session where Carlos Kaiser would play soccer with fans. Afraid of being caught for a fraud, instead of playing soccer with anyone, he just kicked all of the balls up into the crowd while blowing them kisses. He never played at all there. He returned to Brazil a year later, and journalists there depicted him as a top goal scorer while he was in France. Once back, he joined another team. Once again, he faked another injury scam. Castor de Andrade which was the club's major sponsor, became tired of seeing Carlos Kaiser only ever train and never play. During one match, Castor told the coach to play him, as the team was losing 2-0. So when Kaiser was sent to play, he saw a group of supporters shouting abuse at the players, and he jumped in and caused a huge fight with them, for which he was immediately given a red card without even participating in the actual match. After the match, he lied to the patron and the supporters and the sponsors and said that the other people on the field had called him a thief. He was forgiven and he was actually given a six-month extension on his contract. After he retired, he admitted all of this and they even made a documentary about it. Next up is Stefan Cernatek, the fake prince of Montenegro. This story comes from oddityCentral.com, so credit where credit is due. Montenegro is a small country between Croatia and North Macedonia on the Adriatic Sea, east of Italy. Stefan Cernatek has, for years, called himself, quote, His Imperial and Royal Highness Stefan Cernatek, 
hereditary prince of Montenegro, Serbia, and Albania, descendant of the Roman Emperor Constantine, and head of the Montenegrin royal family. Unquote. Quite a title. There is only one problem. Montenegro doesn't have a prince. But that didn't stop this 57-year-old Italian conman from traveling all around Europe for years in a black Mercedes, sporting Montenegrin flags and a fake royal insignia that he made, and staying in luxury hotels free of charge while being catered to and waited on hand and foot. To make his claims even more believable, Cernatek set up a website and several social media accounts where he regularly posted photos of himself alongside known royals like Prince Albert of Monaco and members of other famous royal families. On his website and Facebook pages, Prince Cernatek published family trees, photographs and illustrations of medals, seals, coats of arm, and legal rulings. It all looked very impressive, but according to Italian police officers who had been investigating him for more than a year, it was all just nonsense. However, his elaborate con proved very effective for many years. He attended receptions organized by real royal families. He recently shared a table with Princess Irene of Greece and Denmark in Athens. He has met with bishops at the Vatican and attended lavish parties on mega yachts in Monaco. Emilio Moriani, the mayor of Monopoly, Italy, held a lavish party in the prince's honor after Cernatec promised to promote that town to businessmen in his own country. In June 2015, Prince Stefan Cernatec awarded Pamela Anderson the title of Countess in a solemn ceremony that saw this Hollywood actress kneel before the Montenegrin prince to receive the honor, and he did the whole thing where he touches her shoulders with a sword and all. She was also named the Great Lady of Montenegro, and her children received the title of knights. So Pamela Anderson is a fake countess of Montenegro. To further enhance his royal persona, his imperial and royal highness Stefan Cernatec hired an honorary consul who traveled around Europe as an ambassador of the Royal House of Montenegro. This consul would arrive before the exalted prince to be sure all accommodations were to his liking at the finest hotels and resorts in Europe. So this is very clever. If a guy dressing and acting like some royal family member you'd never heard of just showed up at your hotel expecting a bunch of stuff for free, it's likely that the hotel would say, yeah, right, get lost. But instead, what they did was send this fake handler or concierge who goes a few days beforehand and meets with the hotel manager, maybe some of the staff, and he tells them that the Prince of Montenegro will be arriving there in four days at precisely 2 p.m. And then he gives them a bunch of rules they have to follow. Like, there can be no potted plants within 12 feet of the main entry door, and that the prince must have the penthouse suite, and there must be eight bottles of 1983 Dom Perignon chilled in the room, and he would like to dine in the governor's room at 6 p.m., and on and on and on. So for three and a half days after that, the hotel does all this work, and of course, because of that, the story spreads, and the Prince of Montenegro will be there on this day and that time, and so when he finally pulls up, 
they all see what they're expecting to see. And he plays the role perfectly. He rolls up right on schedule in his black Mercedes with a chauffeur, complete with flags flying and fake royal seal magnets on the doors. He would meet with celebrities and attend extravagant parties, and upon departure, the prince or his honorary consul would instruct the hotel to simply forward the bills to the embassy of Macedonia in Italy, or the Montenegrin embassy in Croatia, and a few others, and somehow the bills would get paid. The other genius part of the con is that there is no prince of Montenegro. So no one is ever going to say, hey, wait a minute, he's not the prince of Montenegro, I'm the prince of Montenegro. No one is ever going to see the real prince on TV and know that this guy's a fake because he isn't impersonating anyone. Anyone real. As a matter of fact, if anyone is the prince of Montenegro, he is. And he lived the life of a prince for years, scot-free. I mean, he had to do the work to do it, but it must have been a hoot. The whole thing finally started to unravel when the Macedonian embassy in Italy had finally had enough and they fired off a scathing letter to a lavish hotel telling them that they had no prince and that they certainly weren't liable for the hotel bills of a prince from Montenegro. When the hotel reached out to officials in the Treasury Department of Montenegro trying to get paid for these bills, they discovered that they too were bereft of any princes and at that point the hotel contacted Italian law enforcement and they eventually arrested the conman and charged him with fraud, document forgery, and erroneously posing as a member of the Montenegro royal family for years. Another famous grifter is Frank Abagnale. He's the catch-me-if-you-can guy from the Spielberg DiCaprio movie of that name, which is based on Abagnale's autobiography. Frank Abagnale has been charged with crimes including grand theft auto, larceny, theft, forgery, and fraud. He's free now, and he currently runs Abagnale & Associates, a private security firm that specializes in secure document consulting. Be sure to hire them. <laughs> He's mostly known for his long series of what are known as victimless workplace frauds. Among these scams, Abagnale claims to have fraudulently impersonated the Assistant State Attorney General of Louisiana, a physician for a hospital in Georgia, and a Pan Am airline pilot, whereby he logged over 2 million air miles flying for free, as employee pilots can do. It's also quite possible, however, that his greatest con centers on the notion that he is actually lying about doing all or most of that, contrary to what his books and the resulting movie would have us believe. For instance, it's very unlikely that Abagnale ever worked as an assistant attorney general. Kenneth C. Dijon, former actual first assistant attorney general of Louisiana, said about Abagnale, quote, The man is not an imposter, he is a liar. Part 3. Long Cons The Billionaire Boys Club Joe Hunt was a smart kid who got a scholarship to attend a prep school where most of the other students were rich kids from Los Angeles. Hunt graduated in the early 1980s amid a culture of big money being made on Wall Street. And Hunt had an idea. 
recruit some of the rich guys he knew from school, and start an investment company to get stinking rich. He convinced several of his graduating classmates to pitch in starting capital from their trust funds, and with these guys, he started a company called BBC Incorporated. The initials didn't really stand for anything, other than jokingly the Bombay Bicycle Club, which was a restaurant Hunt had gone to as a kid in Chicago. Hunt's idea was to hire only young guys to be stockbrokers and traders, and to use the money his friends had invested to make their investment company look successful from the beginning. They rented expensive office space, hired attractive receptionists, outfitted the staff with tailored suits, and built a conference room complete with a long mahogany table and a mural of the world map covering one entire wall. Anyone walking into BBC would see a successful investment firm, even though they had yet to make any investments in the stock market. Soon, they were hosting meetings with corporate agents, wealthy investors, and up-and-coming tech companies. They created a stock fund that Hunt managed, and investors could buy shares of it. Hunt's trading strategies worked, and he made some money for his investors, and they were off. Hunt wanted to go straight to the big time, however, and this ambition landed him in the office of another supposedly successful stock trader, Ron Levine. What Hunt did not know, however, was that Levine was an old-school con man. Levine offered to let Hunt and his BBC company manage a portfolio of $5 million. Joe Hunt and the BBC were at their height. Hunt traded those assets in the $5 million portfolio invested from Levine, and in no time, he had increased the value to $14 million. At one point, Hunt went to the investment bank managing the account to withdraw money, and when he did, he discovered that the account was fictional. It only existed on paper. Ron Levine had convinced the investment bank that he was a university professor, and this fictitious account was supposedly part of a finance class he was teaching. The account was set up so that his students, in this case Joe Hunt and his brokers, could trade the stocks in the account as if they were really trading with actual money. Levine had then used the balances of this account to get a sizable loan from another bank, which he had no intention of repaying. When Joe Hunt realized this, he was not only furious about being tricked by Levine, but he also went, in that one day, from believing he had $14 million to having nothing. He and another BBC top man went to Levine's house and, at gunpoint, force Levine to sign a contract handing over a large amount of money and assets to the BBC. Both were worthless. After that, Levine vanished, but Hunt and his crew were still broke. Hunt then conspired with two BBC members, Arben Dosti and Reza Eslaminia, to kidnap and extort Hediat Eslaminia, Reza's father, who was supposed to be a wealthy Middle Eastern businessman. In reality, however, Hediat Eslaminia was also, at the time, essentially broke. 
in the process of being kidnapped by Hunt and his friend, the man accidentally suffocated. The whole thing fell apart at that point, and Hunt, as well as the others involved, were charged with murdering both the missing Levine and the deceased Eslaminia. Arben Dosti and Reza Eslaminia were convicted of killing Eslaminia, and, but both sentences were eventually overturned. Hunt's was not, and he remains jailed for that, as well as for murdering Ron Levine, although no body was ever found in that charge. Joe Hunt has always maintained that he never killed Levine, and that Levine faked his own death. Many people have claimed to see Levine since, and the Hunt family has a $100,000 reward for anyone who can prove that Levine is still alive. This is one of those stories that took a dark turn, but if Hunt had not become mixed up with Ron Levine and worked directly with an investment bank, it is very likely that we would think of him today as a success of late 80s Wall Street instead of a convicted murderer. In fact, his investment strategies did actually work. He nearly tripled the $5 million account Levine set up for him. If there had been actual money in it, Hunt would have become known as a young Wall Street wizard. Instead, this is a tragic case of a con man being conned by a better con man and allowing circumstances to escalate and never knowing when to cut his losses, even to the point of killing people over it. After the first person died accidentally, or the second person died accidentally, there was no turning back. There is an excellent 1987 TV miniseries starring Judd Nelson as Joe Hunt, and you can buy a DVD of it as a full three-hour film. There's also a 2018 reboot movie that is, most say, not nearly as well done as the 1987 TV movie. This 2018 feature film, entitled Billionaire Boys Club, stars Ansel Elgort as Joe Hunt and Kevin Spacey as Ron Levine. It debuted to a dismal opening night, grossing a shockingly low $126, mainly due to the involvement of Kevin Spacey, who had just months earlier been accused of several instances of sexual harassment and sexual assault, making him, obviously, box office poison. Judd Nelson, who played Hunt in the 1987 miniseries, played Hunt's father in that movie. I haven't seen it, but I did love the original. It might be cool to see Judd Nelson in the new one. The next person on our list, and arguably the OG of the long con, is Victor Lustig. Victor Lustig was a highly skilled con man from Austria-Hungary. He is largely regarded as one of the most notorious con artists of all time. And he is most famous for being the man who sold the Eiffel Tower twice. He sold the Eiffel Tower to a metal scrap company who showed up and started dismantling it. And then uh, all of that uh, sort of fell apart. And you know, you have to admire the guy's uh, ingenuity. Another con man who was actually inspired by Victor Lustig is George C. Parker. George C. Parker was an American con man best known for his repeated success of selling the Brooklyn Bridge. And this is where that old saying comes from, which is something like, if you believe that, I got a bridge I can sell you. 
because this guy actually did sell the Brooklyn Bridge. He made his living conducting illegal sales of property. He not only sold the Brooklyn Bridge, he sold the Statue of Liberty, he sold islands, he sold cruise ships, he sold everything. And he did this by having uh, accomplices on the boats when people would be transferred, like immigrants coming in to New York, and he would target the highest, most successful affluent people. And his accomplice would say something like, oh man, look at that bridge. If anyone could ever uh, put a toll on that, they'd be rich because so many people come across it. And then they would follow this guy and then George Parker would talk to this rich person a couple times and slowly but surely gain their confidence. And he would say things like, I own this, I own that property. Oh, I'm a landlord of that building. Oh yeah, also, by the way, I own that bridge, but I'm thinking of getting rid of it. It's, it's a huge pain. It's a lot of maintenance and stuff. And then the, the mark would say, well, what do you mean getting rid of it? Uh, you know, can't you make some money with it? Well, I could if I, if I did some toll gates and all that, but I've got so much else going on. And he would just drag the person along until it would be their idea to buy the bridge. And he did it multiple times. And normally the way that authorities would find out that he had done this is when this new owner of the bridge would show up and start putting up barricades and installing toll gates. And then the, uh, the police would show up and say, hey, man, you know, what are you doing? Oh, well, I'm putting it. No, no. I hate to break it to you. You can't buy the Brooklyn Bridge. And it happened multiple times. So George C. Parker, uh, born in 1860, died in 1936 and sold the Brooklyn Bridge and the Statue of Liberty mul- multiple times to wealthy immigrants. Part four, hoaxers. Somewhere between a long con and a hoax is Zig Zig Sputnik. Zig Zig Sputnik, the 80s glam rock man who made a fortune selling band t-shirts and posters. The only thing about Zig Zig Sputnik, however, is that they were not a band at all. None of them could play an instrument, and as a band, they never made a single song or album, at least in the beginning. They were just the idea of a few marketing students who hired their friends based on looks and used a photographer to take studio photos of the band with instruments looking cool in front of smoky backgrounds and under-colored stage lights. They sold posters and t-shirts to record stores and mall clothing shops and made millions of dollars. In fact, They made so much money that they did eventually make an album, which was, by all accounts, terrible. That could never be done today because you could really quickly find out that they weren't a band because you could find none of their songs were for sale on Spotify or whatever. But back in the days of record stores, you have to remember, they didn't really succeed at selling posters and t-shirts to fans. They just succeeded at selling posters and t-shirts to the people who were the purchasing agents of the mall stores and the record stores. So that was the beauty of it, and it did work. Back in 2009, Richard and Mayumi Heaney told law enforcement and news media that their six-year-old son, Falcon, had floated away in a homemade UFO-shaped silver helium balloon. The story broke on national news and became a media circus with live footage of the silver flying saucer-shaped balloon soaring at an altitude of 1,200 feet. News helicopters followed it and filmed it. 
police, paramedics, and news crews were there when the balloon ran out of steam and drifted to the ground. The balloon was inspected, but no child was aboard. The boy was later found hiding in the attic. The parents claimed it had all been a big mistake. But then, in an interview with Wolf Blitzer, the parents asked their son on camera, Why did you not come out from hiding when we called your name? The boy answered by saying, quote, You guys said we did this for the show. This confirmed what authorities had suspected. Police labeled the incident a hoax, adding that investigators believed the evidence indicated that it was all an elaborate and fraudulent publicity stunt by the family created to generate publicity to market themselves for a reality television show they were trying to develop called Science Detectives. In fact, the parents had previously appeared on the reality TV show called Wife Swap. At least one episode featuring the couple was pulled from Lifetime TV after the Balloon Boy incident was shown to be a hoax. Crime doesn't pay. One of my favorites is Alan Abel. Alan Abel was a serial hoaxer, writer, and mockumentary filmmaker famous for several hoaxes that also became media circuses. He orchestrated what is now known as the Mass Fainting Hoax, where several members of the Phil Donahue talk show live audience suddenly fainted all at once, causing the host to stop the show, remove the audience, and continue without a crowd for that day. The hoax was Abel's protest against poor quality television. What would he do today? One of Alan Abel's finest works, in my opinion, was The Society for Indecency to Naked Animals, or SENA. This group's mission was to clothe indecent naked animals, including domestic pets, barnyard animals, and large wildlife like bears and buffalo. The society and its goals were then presented on news and talk shows from 1959 through 1963, mainly by comedian and improviser Buck Henry in the guise of Cena president G. Clifford Prout. Prout went on talk shows like Phil Donahue once again, and the audiences would fall into arguments on both sides, People would yell and scream at those against it all, saying that it's offensive to see naked animals everywhere. Scary for sure. And no paranormal-leaning podcast about hoaxers would be complete without a mention of Ray Wallace. Ray Wallace's family came forward after his death at 84 years old to reveal the fake wooden feet he carved to tramp hoaxed Bigfoot tracks around construction sites in Northern California in the 60s and 70s. This is a subject that you could do several hours on. The list of hoaxes, hoaxers, and conmen is virtually endless. Before we wrap this up, I want to tell you about one of my favorite movies. The 1987 film noir conman masterpiece called House of Games, directed by David Mamet. It's older at this point, but because the film is shot in such a moody, atmospherical way by cinematographer Juan Ruiz Anquia, it doesn't feel terribly dated. 
Without spoiling it too much, it tells the story of a psychiatrist who tries to help a gambling addict patient and she gets mixed up in a cast of nefarious characters and the whole thing is hypnotic and brilliantly acted and shot. I love Mamet's work. He also wrote Glengarry Glen Ross and won a Pulitzer Prize for the play version of that script. House of Games is a movie that got me interested in con men in both popular culture and real life. I haven't seen it in a while, so I'm going to find it and watch it again. As for a summary of this subject, I don't know. There are lessons here. Crime doesn't pay. Don't be a con man. That's about it. I gave some deep consideration into my own personality while working on this episode. Why am I so fascinated by con men and hoaxers? I think it's for the same reasons that I love heist stories and movies. I'm totally not a bank robber or a con man, but I love those stories because I love the planning and execution of a complex project. I love the cloak and dagger machinations of an elaborate caper. That's all. And for the same reasons, I love these stories about con men and hoaxers. I know many of them cause real damage and loss of money, and being a fraud and fleecing a mark is never a good thing. The best hoaxes reveal the fragility of our constructs and moralities, like the Society for Indecency to Naked Animals, or whatever. The idea that a guy can just fraudulently make something up like that and then get people actually arguing about whether buffaloes should be made to wear clothes, that just shows you how quickly people will join into something that is utterly preposterous. And they will. And they will again. It's fun to look at the fringes, at those people who are just crazy enough to try something and get away with it. Not condoning or suggesting it, but it can still be fun to explore. I hope you had fun with this episode. Thank you sincerely for diving into the dark world of hoaxers and con men with me. I just updated the renegadefiles.com website to put the episode player at the top of every episode post there to make it easier for you if you listen to the show on the website. I'm also in the earliest stages of updating the website and the merchandise store and creating a more interactive and dynamic site for the Renegade Files home base. I'll keep you posted. The show is growing, and every day we find new listeners. Much of that is thanks to you doing things like sharing us with your friends and sending people our way, so thank you. Thank you so much if you are a Renegade Files supporter on Patreon. We are steadily growing the Patreon content as well, and I am so grateful for all of our RFA agents there. I love it. For now, and until we meet again, I'm your host, Lex Gordon. Stay wild, punk rock child. 